Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. <clears throat> People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit, produce good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat from the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Well, let me ask you, how do you deal with failure? How do you deal with failure in life? Uh, It's that time of year where we get quite a lot of Christmas letters. I don't know if you get many Christmas letters. They have a sort of standard format, don't they? Um, uh, This year, in the summer, uh, Jennifer got married to the man of her dreams, and they're going off to work in America. Uh, Johnny got six A stars in his A-levels, and so he's going to university uh, in September. And um, uh, Sam uh, finally got his grade eight roller bassoon. And uh, we've always said he was very advanced for a five-year-old. So we're really pleased to see him do that. And of course, we've been on the following lovely holidays as well. Insert photos that make you feel very jealous. And there's something lovely about catching up with other people's news when friends or family send you those through. But there's also something somewhat unreal 
about Christmas letters, isn't there? There's something kind of unreal because I don't know about you, but when it gets to the end of the year and I look back over the year that was, there are lots of things that I'm thankful for. Uh, We've got one or two um, uh, annoying pictures of us enjoying ourselves on the beach and things like that as well, but inevitably there are also things I regret about the last year that don't make it into the Christmas letter and that make the Christmas letter slightly unreal. I guess the same will be true for you, because at the end of a year, inevitably, we look back and we can't help but think a little of the ways that we've let people down or hurt people. I think of the ways that I haven't loved God and that I've failed others. And that's what we're thinking about this morning. What do we do with that reality? The reality that alongside all of the good stuff, we also often fail and aren't the people that we ought to be. And we're very good at brushing the reality of our failures under the carpet, aren't we? That's really what Christmas letters do. Um, In our Christmas letters, we don't record all the details of the ways that we failed. And uh, even if you're not the sort of person who sends and receives Christmas letters, um, we, we know that gap, don't we, between the person we present ourselves as on Instagram, in conversation at the Christmas party, maybe to our families and the reality that often we're not the people that we want to be or the people that we know that we should be. So what do we do with failure? Is there a more honest and real and satisfying way of dealing with it than the Christmas letter that brushes it under the carpet or the New Year's resolution that says, well, I'll just pull my socks up and try a bit harder next year? Now, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been seeing the Christmas story together through grown-up eyes as we've been studying Matthew 1 to 3, and we've seen that the central issue of the Christmas story is the identity of Jesus Christ. Uh, We've seen in his miraculous birth and the circumstances around it that Jesus is God become man to rescue us. God become man to rescue us. And we see here, really, as we draw to the end of the Christmas story and we begin Jesus' public ministry at the end of Matthew 3, we see that the central issue is still the identity of Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the answer for our failures is found in the person of Jesus. That if we understand who Jesus is, we will find a much more satisfying and honest and realistic answer to the fact that our lives are such a mix of joy and failure. Uh, It's a passage full of surprises, and the first great surprise is essentially the fact that Jesus comes for baptism at all. Um, If you're following on the handout, I've called it a surprising baptism. You see, John the Baptist, we had it read for us, we heard about it last week if you were here, John the Baptist has been declaring an urgent message. He's been saying, God is coming to his world. It was a message of hope because God was coming to fix the broken relationship between the world and God. But it was also a message of warning, because you remember those words as Joe read them, the axe is at the root of the tree. John had been saying that for those who have failed God, there was a real warning to be heard about the fact that God is coming. And so John had been urgently calling people to repent, 
To repent means to change your mind, to reorientate your life with God at the center rather than yourself. And John had been urgently saying to people, look, God is coming. Reorientate yourself. Turn back to him. John's baptism, which after all is what he's famous for, John the Baptist, his baptism wasn't... Have a look at verse 11 with me, just before our passage. Chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. It was a picture of how we need to be washed clean before we're ready to meet God, of how we need to reorientate ourselves, to come back to God, to be washed. And John has been urgently warning people. But then in verse 13... Have a look at verse 13. A figure comes from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John's stern warning of the need to repent dissolves into humble amazement. And John actually says to this figure, I don't think you should be baptized. No, John is stunned when Jesus comes to him because he knows exactly who Jesus is. Verse 14, but John tried to deter him, tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? See, John knows who this is. He sees that the man in front of him is the God he's been telling people would come. And so he's dazzled, full of amazement that this man would come into the water to be baptized. Now, if... um, If the royal family announced that this Christmas they were going to come and celebrate on Christmas morning here at Fullwood Church, I'd imagine we'd all be pretty busy over the next couple of days, wouldn't we? Because we'd want to clean the place. I mean, it's not that it isn't clean, but you know, if if the royal family are coming, you want to deep clean the place, don't you? And you want a fresh coat of paint on everything and you want it ready. What you don't expect is for Her Her Majesty to arrive on on Christmas morning and ask you to pass her the Henry Hoover or give her a paintbrush and let her get involved. And yet this is exactly what John sees Jesus doing. God come to earth and he's numbered with the transgressors. He's standing in the place that the sinful people stand, in the waters of baptism. Why? Why? Well, look at what Jesus says in reply. Verse 15, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, notice Jesus says that the time for him to baptize with the Spirit and fire hasn't yet come. He says, let it be so now, because the thing he's come to do now at that point in history, is to fulfill all righteousness. And what does that mean? Well, to be righteous, to fulfill all righteousness, is to perfectly obey God in your human life, to love him with your whole heart, and to love other people as yourself all the time. I don't know if you can remember when you did your driving test. Uh, For some of you, that'll be more recent than others, and there are probably one or two here nervously thinking about the test they haven't yet taken. Um, I was talking to a student this term who was telling me that they had failed their driving test four times, 
and that they were taking it again in the new year. And um, it was one of those conversations you don't know whether to gently encourage them to keep going or suggest that maybe they become a cyclist instead. Um, <laughs> no, l li listen, um, listen, if that's you and, uh, and you've done four and you've got another one coming, that was very naughty of me, I'm sorry. Keep going, you'll be okay. Fifth time lucky. But I've also, I had a friend growing up, only person I've ever met who did this. I had a friend growing up who passed their driving test with no majors and no minors. Anyone here who's done that? Didn't think so. Remarkable, isn't it? Um, I, they're about 40 minutes, aren't they, driving tests? For 40 minutes, my friend drove righteously. <laughs> because for 40 minutes, both positively and negatively, they kept the highway code in every sense. For 40 minutes, they drove righteously. Here comes Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. Here comes a man to live before God in every area of his life, in every respect, righteously. To love God and other people perfectly. And you know, the remarkable thing when you read the Gospels, this is one of the things that stuns me about the Gospels again and again. The people who knew Jesus best, his family, friends who lived with him for three years, who saw every moment of his life, say that this man was a perfect person. Someone who is always compassionate, always kind, always loving, always giving, never hurtful, never proud, never selfish. A righteous man. And Jesus says that he comes to stand in the place of sinful people, to be numbered with the transgressors, to be baptized with the baptism we deserve as a perfectly righteous man. A man come to live the life that we have not lived but should have done. And when we think about our failures, Jesus never had failures to reflect on because he came to do what we haven't. And as he stands there in the waters of baptism, the shock, as we draw to the end of the Christmas story, the first great one in this passage, is that Jesus comes to be the true man, the person that we haven't been. You know, John the Baptist had said that the true people of God, the true Israel, would be those who came for his baptism and how here Jesus comes to be the true Israelite, the true righteous man in every area of his life. And we see him starting that out, starting his ministry here. And so if the first great shock is that God became man to live a righteous life, the second great shock is the, um, the conclusion of the story because um, I don't know about you, I've been to a number of baptism services and often when the person comes up out of the water, there's a great big round of applause and sometimes people cheer as well, don't they? But I've never been to a baptism where the heavens are torn open and the Spirit of God visibly ascends in a visible sign and there is an audible voice from, from heaven saying, verse 17, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And you see, again, that the surprising outcome of Jesus' baptism points to the uniqueness of his identity. Uh, the voice from heaven picks up two big ideas from the Old Testament. That first, um, that first part of the sentence, this is my son. 
In the Old Testament, Israel was called God's son. The people of God were to be like a child to God. But of course, if you know the Old Testament, the story of the Bible is the story of how God's people rejected him and failed him again and again. And so God promised to send a king, a forever king who would be his true son, the true man, the person that Israel should have been, the true Israelite. And now don't, don't misunderstand this scene because Jesus didn't become God's son at his baptism No, we've seen already in Matthew, Jesus' miraculous birth, that Jesus is God from all eternity. But here is a sign and a voice that validate and confirm who Jesus is. Uh, Last year, I bought my dad a mug that said Grandad on the side. And um, the fact that, uh, that I gave him that mug doesn't make him a Grandad but it declares to all his mates that that's what he is. And it's a trivial illustration, but that's precisely what's going on uh, here. The, um, the God the Father in this voice from heaven and the visible manifestation of the Spirit, it's a declaration, a validation. This is my Son. This is the true Son who has come. But then there's a second great Old Testament theme that's picked up in these words because um, we had that first reading from Isaiah 42 and the voice from heaven quotes from Isaiah 42 verse 1, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, this is the servant who I uphold. You see God had promised back in the book of Isaiah that when he came to comfort his people he would send a servant. Uh, And um, if you remember that reading from Isaiah 42, the servant would would bring the justice that John the Baptist had preached about. The renewed world, the the justice for the poor, the needy, the weak, but, but also this servant would be gentle. A bruised reed he wouldn't break. A candle that's spluttering and almost gone out, he wouldn't squash. Now, how would he do that? If this voice from heaven declares that Jesus is the servant come to bring justice but also gentleness, how would he do that? Well, as you read on in the book of Isaiah, you come to Isaiah 53, where it says that he, the servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you see, right here at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, God the Father declares from heaven that he is not only the true man, but that he is the servant who would die in the place of sinners and failures 
like you and me. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Um, Let me put it like this. Imagine for a moment that there was a film of my life, and um, I know that the, um, the, the more technologically advanced of you probably haven't seen one of these before, but I put it on DVD format. It, the thing is, it's too sensitive to go in the cloud because this is the full and uncut version of my life. It's not the Christmas letter version. This is the version with all of my failures, the things I'm proud of, but also the things I'm ashamed of, the full and unedited version. Now. What Jesus came to do was to be the true man, the true Israel, and live the life that I should have lived, a life of perfect goodness and compassion and righteousness, but also to be the servant who would die on a cross and take my place. See, what Isaiah 53 says that he came to do was to to take the film of his life and put it in the box labelled Andy, and to put the film of my life with all its failures into his box. And so you see, on the cross, it was as if God opened up the box marked Jesus and watched my life and then punished Jesus for my failures and sins and the ways that I've rebelled against him. But because Jesus lived a perfect life for me, When God opens the box marked Andy on that final day when he returns, the day John the Baptist had warned people of, he will see Jesus' perfect life in all its righteousness and goodness and compassion. And you see, this is what the voice from heaven declares. Uh, This is what the sign of sending down the Spirit validates, that Jesus is the one who came to live the life we should have lived, and to serve us by taking our place on the cross. This is who Jesus is. This is the great surprise and shock of Jesus' baptism and of Jesus' cross. God became man to live the life we couldn't live and to die the sacrificial death that we need, the, the death that we deserve. Now listen, John the Baptist came preaching that people should repent, that they should change their mind and reorientate their lives. And as I close, I'd like to suggest two ways that this means that we should change our mind and reorientate our lives. Uh, The first one is that we should change our minds about God. Because you see, so many people think about God either as a kind of harsh taskmaster, constantly driving them to be better, or as a kind of fuzzy, impersonal spirituality who really does whatever they want. But if this is true, if this happened just as the eyewitnesses said, then we see that the one true God, the God of the Bible, is more like a family than a lonely individual or an impersonal force. A father who sends his son to rescue us because he loves us and in the power of his spirit. And so this Christmas, as you remember the Christmas story, you remember that God became man, 
rejoice that the God we worship is far bigger than we ever could have imagined or made up on our own or reasoned our way to because he is one God in three persons come to do everything we could never do and to save us. But then secondly, change the way that you think about God's rescue plan. You see, it seems to me that it's, it's quite familiar for lots of us to, um, uh, to understand that Jesus came at Christmas so that he could die at Easter. I, I guess there are plenty here who would have made that connection already. If that's a new idea to you, then let me say keep looking into it because it is a glorious truth. But this scene shows us that it's more than that. Jesus didn't just become a man so that he could die. He became a man so that he could live the life we've never lived so that he could die. This Christmas, let's rejoice in the truth that God became man because it meant that he could do what we could never do for us. His whole life leading up to Easter And of course, that gives us a way to deal with our failures. It gives us a way to deal with our mixed experience of life over the last year that's far more satisfying than just brushing things under the rug. You can still write a Christmas letter that focuses on your strengths, if you like. You don't have to to write a mea culpa and send it to all of your friends confessing all of your sins. But this Christmas, you can confess to Jesus that you haven't been the person you should have been. You can come back to him and admit your failures, your sins, the way you haven't loved God or others as you should, and trust him that he lived a perfect life for you and died a sacrificial death in your place. And that's God's answer to the question of our failures, and praise God for it. So listen, let me get in early and say happy Christmas. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing of that great truth together. So let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for the person of Jesus, for who he is, the true man who lived the life that we've never lived, and the suffering servant who died the death we need in our place. We pray this Christmas you would fill us with the joy of knowing those two things, And in doing so, that you would help us to deal with our our failures and our sins by bringing them to him and trusting him in our place. In his name and for his glory. Amen.